Have you ever seen something so incredible, so unbelievable, that you couldn't believe what your eyes were telling you? Viktor Prokofiev was headed to work early on a Friday morning when his world exploded. The sky flashes bright as day, a sonic boom blasts his ears, and then a shockwave hits. Windows are shattered, buildings are damaged. In fact, 1,200 people are injured. A meteorite weighing 10 metric tons had entered Earth's atmosphere over Russia, and it had exploded with the force of a small nuclear bomb. Today, we're going to look at the experience of Ezekiel, who also saw something so spectacular that it blasted him off his feet. It left him shaking and terrified. Ezekiel sees God himself, the sovereign master of the universe, seated on a heavenly chariot. And this vision transforms Ezekiel into one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. In 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he had attacked Jerusalem. He replaced the king with one of his own choosing, and he carried many of the leading citizens of Judah into exile to Babylon. Now, Ezekiel was one of those. He was from a priestly family. He was one of those who were taken. While he is in exile in Babylon, Ezekiel experiences what the NIV Quest Study Bible calls bizarre visions and puzzling revelations. Now, this vision sets Ezekiel on the path to being God's prophet, to carrying an important, vital message back to the exiles. Now, many find it difficult to read the Old Testament book of Ezekiel because, really, it's one of the weirdest books in the Bible. It's almost impossible for us to picture what Ezekiel saw in his visions of God. In fact, his visions are so strange some have decided that he must have been seeing aliens and UFOs. But these visions, as strange, as incomprehensible as they are, they were essential if those Jews who were with Ezekiel in exile, if they were going to understand who God was and what he had planned for them. And these weird, wonderful visions of Ezekiel, they are still important to us today to let us understand who God is and what God has planned for us. Our text today is from Ezekiel chapter 1. If you have a Bible and you would like to follow along, we're going to be uh, reading from this first chapter. The book begins with Ezekiel at 30 years old. He's living along the Kibar River on the outskirts of Babylon. One day he's out walking. And as he's walking, he sees a windstorm approaching from the north. Now, you may have seen a desert sandstorm on TV, and these are amazing sights. This was an immense storm that Ezekiel saw, most likely stretching from horizon to horizon. But there's something different about this storm. It's not your usual sandstorm. The middle of this storm is a mass looking like glowing metal. It's emitting a brilliant light, and there are lightning bolts that are striking everywhere. As the cloud gets closer, Ezekiel begins to see details inside the cloud. 
And what he sees is a chariot, an immense throne set on wheels, the very chariot throne of God himself. Now, we aren't given any details as to the exact size, but this must have been enormous. The wheels themselves are described as so high that they are awe-inspiring. At the base of the chariot are four creatures, four creatures that you've never seen the like of before. They have the general shape and appearance of a man, but they have wings and they have four faces, the face of a man, an eagle, an ox, and a lion. They're sparkling like polished bronze. Uh, The Bible says they're like burning coals of fire. They flash back and forth like lightning as they move through the cloud. Then Ezekiel's eyes are drawn to the wheels of the Lord's chariot. These are immense double wheels or wheels within wheels as they are described. The rims of the wheels are covered with eyes. And above these wheels is a sea of glass crystal. And then there's the throne. And on the throne, Ezekiel sees something that very few humans have ever seen. He sees God himself. From his waist up, the color of amber. From the waist down, fire. And putting off a brilliant light, a rainbow of incredible radiance. And there's not only sight, but there's also sound. This is not a silent vision. Ezekiel is hit by a wall of sound the sound of rushing waters, the booming footsteps of an enormous army that's on the move. It's hard for us to grasp the full effect of this, view, of this vision using words, but we can see its impact on Ezekiel. The vision is so overwhelming, he falls to the ground, he buries his face in the sand. Frankly, Ezekiel is terrified. He can no longer continue to look at this incredible glorious image. This is God in all of his transcendent splendor, the master of the universe. Now, Ezekiel's vision reveals two very important ideas about God, and these were central concepts to understanding who God is, but they were concepts that the Israelites of Ezekiel's day had gotten wrong. They had gotten them wrong almost from the start, And they are concepts that we generally get wrong in the modern church today. First, Ezekiel's vision revealed the reality of God. One of the things that make us human, we find it hard to believe what we can't see. We find it hard to believe something that's outside the experience of our normal lives. Now, we often see this in young children when they want to hide They'll put their hands over their own eyes. In their minds, if they can't see you, then you can't see them. To young children, something is real only if they are experiencing it. It's impossible for them to understand that other people can see a reality that they don't. So, when they can't see you, you can't see them. Now, we know children quickly grow out of this, but The same basic misconception often will occur in adults. The idea that only what we see or hear or experience is real. That if it's not part of our everyday experience, 
what we call our real life, then it doesn't truly exist. But when Ezekiel sees God, the full reality of God is revealed. There's no denying it. God is real enough to put Ezekiel on his face in the desert. This is nothing like anything that he's ever experienced before. It's as far from his normal everyday life as possible. But Ezekiel cannot deny the reality of this God that he's meeting. Secondly, Ezekiel's vision reveals the holiness of God. One of the reasons we find it so difficult to read the book of Ezekiel is the bizarreness of his vision. It's so odd, so puzzling, we really can't put it into words. Our normal experience as we read something, we form a mental picture. But you can't really do this with Ezekiel's vision. This is a vision that's so indescribable that uh, it's hard to picture. But the details themselves, they aren't the point of this vision. Ezekiel wants us to understand this is a God so far beyond our ability to comprehend, to explain. There's no way we can adequately describe him. He is infinite, which means he has no boundaries, no parameters. God cannot be defined. Now, the word we use to describe this, this inability to grasp, to limit, to define God, we say God is holy. We use that word holy a lot, but often we don't really understand what we mean by it. Holiness doesn't describe what God is like, that God is good or kind or merciful, etc., Holiness is a statement of who God is. Holiness is the essential, primary nature of God. You could say that it's the godness of God. Now, the basic meaning of the word holy is separate or separateness. It's a condition of being totally different, totally other, totally apart. In other words, to be holy means that God is completely unlike anything else. God is in a class by himself. And it's important that we understand this. Now, we read in the Bible that man is created in the image of God. But we take this a step further and we reverse it. We begin to believe that God is simply a superior version of man. We begin to think that God is like us, only much, much better. But this is not the case. God is a being who is completely different. God is transcendent, so far above and beyond us that he is completely foreign to us. Rudolf Otto describes this holy God using the Latin phrase mysterium tremendum. And this phrase means awe-inspiring mystery. To experience a holy God is to experience a being that's impossible to fathom, someone who it's impossible to penetrate the ultimate otherness. This is an experience that's both terrifying and fascinating at the same time. It was important for the exiles to have a new vision of God's reality, of God's holiness, because their old vision had some serious flaws. First, they had misunderstood the reality of God. 
the exiles thought they knew where God was. And it wasn't with them in the deserts of Babylon. No, in their minds, God could be in only one place. And that was in his temple at Jerusalem, residing between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. This was the inner court of the temple. They had seen God's Spirit, His Shekinah glory, descend upon the temple when it was first dedicated by Solomon. To them, the idea that God would be somewhere else was unthinkable. Now, the exiles also misunderstood the holiness of God. They failed to realize God's holiness means that He is totally unique and separate. God is completely other. That is, God is unknowable. Their thought was they knew exactly who and what God was. They thought they knew how God would react. They believed they could predict God. In their minds, they had God figured out. And we can see this from their attitude toward the prophets. Their prophets had been telling the Israelites for years, judgment is coming. Because of your idolatry, because of your sins, this land is going to be overrun by your enemies. God will expel you from the land. But the Jewish people had never taken this idea seriously. And even now, when some of them were in exile in Babylon, the exiled people were still convinced that God would never allow the land to be totally destroyed, that God would never allow his city, Jerusalem, and his temple to be demolished. They were convinced that they knew who God was and they could predict what God would do. They knew that at some point, or they thought they knew, that at some point God would relent and step in and the exiles would be brought back to Jerusalem. Everything could continue as it had been. This idea, when we mistake the reality and the holiness of God, it wasn't just some mistake that the exiles had made. Today, we too often have a misunderstanding of the reality, the holiness of God. We've lost our understanding of the reality of God. There are many who sit in church pews Sunday after Sunday, and they've never truly met God. Oh, they know the theology. They've heard all of the Bible stories. And they may have even made some kind of outward profession. But in their mind, a Christian is simply a person who behaves better than a non-Christian. A Christian goes to church. A Christian tells the truth most of the time. A Christian doesn't cheat on his wife. A Christian doesn't get drunk, use drugs. But in their minds, essentially, a Christian is simply a cleaner, living non-believer. They have no understanding that to be a Christian is to be someone who has been born again and, as a result, to have a totally new life, to become a different kind of person. C.S. Lewis, he said this very well when he said, Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good, but instead to make, good, to make dead people alive. A Christian is one who has an ongoing relationship with a very real Christ, and this gives them a new life in Christ. And there are others in our churches 
who have been saved and they have a relationship with God, but God is a reality in only one part of their lives. They have split their lives into different spheres. There's the church life, which occurs on Sundays, and then there are the other spheres of their life, their life at home, their life at work, their life with their friends. God is only an active presence when they are at church. Now, the exiles believed that God only made his home in the temple. Many of of our Christians today believe that God inhabits the church, but nowhere else. So they come to church, they experience God at church, but they leave the reality of God there, and then they go off to live the rest of their lives. So it's not necessarily that they live wicked or sinful lives, but they live lives that are totally under their own power, in their own wisdom. There's no sharing of their life with Christ. Now, we've also lost the understanding of what it means that God is holy. For example, if you ask many Christians, what is God like? You would hear answers such as, God is merciful, God is kind, God is good, God is love. How many would answer, however, God is fierce, God is dangerous, God is other? We have a very one-sided view of God, one-dimensional. But those in the Bible, those who had actually experienced God, they usually wound up on their face in the dirt. They were terrified. They understood this idea of a dangerous God, a God who is completely other, one who could not be treated as human. They understood that God is untamable. This is the essence of God's holiness. God is other. You know, we have begun to see God as simply a stronger, wiser, better version of ourselves. But uh, God himself is holy. God is other. Many of you may have seen the Chronicles of Narnia movies. And these were based on a series of books by C.S. Lewis where he describes the adventures that four human children have in the land of Narnia. Now, the leader of Narnia is Aslan, and Aslan is intended to represent God. In the books and the movie, when the children learn that Aslan is a lion, they get a little nervous. One of the children replies, Ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. The answer she's given is, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this really is the essence of holiness. Our God isn't a safe God. To come into contact with God is to encounter a a presence so intense, so explosive and powerful Our immediate response is to end up flat on our face. Think of how a a bomb disposal expert approaches a bomb, knowing that one slip-up could result in annihilation. When we realize the true holiness of God, we realize we are in the presence of one before whom we are completely powerless, where all we can do is tremble. We can't predict God. 
We can't tame God. We can't restrain God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. While God is not safe, He can't be managed or controlled, our God is good. His goodness is part of that unchanging nature. God can never be anything but good. We can't know necessarily why God is doing what He's doing, but we can know God is always acting for our good. God always acts in accord with what is right, with what is true. Now, this misunderstanding that the exiles had of the reality and the holiness of God, it had serious consequences for them. Their view was that God resided only in the temple and that God would never allow this temple to be destroyed. This led them to an arrogance that made them believe that they could possess or control God. In other words, if God's Spirit was in the temple, as long as they controlled Jerusalem, as long as they had the temple, then they would possess God Himself. If God would never allow Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed, they could manipulate or control God. They could be secure in their position as the covenant people, knowing God might threaten God might even punish, but their possession of the temple meant God could never forsake them entirely. So, they didn't have to take His judgment seriously. As long as they kept the temple going, as long as they said the right prayers, and as long as they offered the right sacrifices, really, they could live as they pleased. Isaiah 29, 13 sums this up. God is describing the people of Israel, and He says, these people come near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. To the mind of the exiles, they knew what to expect of God. And they were so arrogant, they felt they could use this knowledge to manipulate God. They could placate God when they needed to, do enough to keep God satisfied, but still basically live as they wanted to. Now, Ezekiel's vision of a holy God, it puts the lie to all of this. His God was holy, a God totally other, totally separate, a God that you could never dream of controlling. This is no God who can be trifled with. Now, the mistaken idea that about God's reality and holiness these create problems for us today. When we fail to recognize the reality, the holiness of God, we often get the same idea that we can control or manage God. We believe that we get God, that because God is basically like us, we can manage Him as we do other people in our lives. Instead of the real God, the true God, we have fashioned a God that's more to our liking, a nice, tame, safe God. We want to worship a God who's been made in our image, a God who values the same things we do, who keeps the same priorities we do. This is a God who won't make extreme demands upon us, but basically reaffirms, validates the lives that we want to live. 
So we want a God who shares our opinions. Now, the exiles believed that God would eventually give in and send them back to Israel to let them live as his people. The truth was God did have a plan to bring the exiles back, but it wasn't to bring them back so that they could continue to live in the same old way. God's purpose was to bring them back as a transformed people. He tells Ezekiel later in Ezekiel chapter 36, he gives his plans for the people. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all of the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So God had in mind for them something much better than what they wanted. But God's plan could never take place as long as the exiles were worshiping an imitation of God, a false idea that they had created and fashioned. It was only when they recognized the true God, the reality of God, the holiness of God, only then would their arrogance be taken away and they could reap the full benefits of serving the one true God. Only then could they become the true people of God. Now, worshiping a counterfeit God has its consequences. We saw the consequences for the exiles, but it also has consequences for us today. Just like for the exiles, God has a plan for us, a future, a future life of such vitality and possibility we can scarcely imagine it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul tells us God has a plan to make us glorious. He goes on to say, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. And then in Ephesians, Paul tells us, We can be full to the measure of all the fullness of God. His power will be at work in us to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Jesus promised us in John 10, verse 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. When we look at Scripture, we can see what this full life will look like, a life lived in the power and presence of the Spirit. This is a life where it's possible to be content in any and every situation. A life where it's possible to give thanks for everything that's happening to us, where we can rejoice in any and every circumstance. A life where we have to worry about nothing. In fact, a life where we can even consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. Where we have the peace of God where God meets all of our needs. You know, this is a life where we are promised to inherit the earth. Now, we have the promise of this life, but many Christians today never see anything like this. They limp along, discontented, dissatisfied with life, envying other people, 
maybe resenting mistreatments that they have, worried how they're going to live, how they're going to eat and drink. Maybe they're trapped in lifestyles that they're, they're trying to get out of, but they can't. You know, so many in the church have given up. They've resigned themselves to living far below what God has promised. They've resigned themselves to never having the spiritual birthright, the birthright they are entitled to, to be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, many times Christians will look at promises like this from Scripture, and we kind of wave them off as exaggeration. You know, we consider them to be like so many of the commercials that we watch on TV. They really can't be taken seriously. Others may say, you know, I've given the Christian life a chance, but my life sure doesn't look anything like this life of victory that's promised. I'm struggling. You know, I'm worried. I have all of this that I can't seem to overcome. Like the exiles, we aren't able to have the future God intends for us until we give up this false idea of God, until we embrace the totality of God's reality and God's holiness. When God is truly real to us, we can live out the concept of quorum Deo. This is another one of those Latin phrases, and it means before the face of God or in the presence of God. And so to live a life as quorum Deo is to live in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. It's an awareness that all life is about God. Without this awareness, we live as what Craig Goschel defines as Christian atheist. And this may sound funny. How can you have a Christian atheist? But these are those who believe in God, but they live as if he doesn't exist. They live the life described in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. When we understand the holiness of God, we give up any attempts to control or to manipulate God. We stop trying to get God to line up with our plans, and we, we align our lives to His will. This is consecration to God. It's giving up control. We don't ask Him to bless and approve what we want. Instead, we find out what He wants. Then we put ourselves in a position where we can live the incredible life that God has promised us. Shape Magazine, in July of 2015, published an article where they said, Americans are starving. Now, that can be hard to believe. We are living the paradox of the Western diet, where we are getting fatter and fatter, while at the same time, more and more of us are malnourished. And this is because we are producing food that is increasingly tasty, but decreasingly nutritious. And this has consequences. For the first time in almost 100 years, the average life expectancy of Americans is actually going down. We've been trained and conditioned by our culture to crave junk food, food that's quick and easy and cheap and that satisfies all of our cravings for salt and fat and sugar. But this is not real food. Now, our modern church life is sometimes no different. John J. Thompson writes, 
We have gorged ourselves on cheap church for decades. Just as we find ourselves living on fake food in our physical diet, we can find ourselves living on fake food spiritually as well. We can find ourselves manufacturing a worship experience, something that provides the the facade of worship. It may appeal to our senses. It may push all of the right buttons. But there is not that real connection to a very real God. We are worshiping an imitation, a God created in our own image. But we do not have to live a life trapped in this, a life where we're trapped in habits and addictions that ruin our health, a life where we're worried and angry and scared and uncertain and unsure, a life of squabbling and fighting with our neighbors, you know, a life of dissatisfaction, of envy. We can live the life that God has promised us. Now, while this life may seem too good to be true, we've seen it at work. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives us a brief biography of his life. Listen to how he describes his life. He says, I've worked hard. I've been frequently put into prison. I've been flogged severely, exposed to death again and again. Five times I've been whipped by the Jews with 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. I've been stoned once, shipwrecked three times, spent a night and a day floating in the open sea. Now, the life that Paul is describing here doesn't seem like really the kind of life we want. You know, his life really doesn't make much of a recruiting pitch for being an apostle. But look at how Paul also describes his life. In Philippians 4, 3, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then in Philippians 3, 8, Paul says he has enjoyed the priceless privilege, the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus. So, Paul was one who was experiencing this full life of Christ. His outer life, with its circumstances, had everything thrown at him. And yet, he was able to live a life of such victory, a life of such fulfillment, that he could say, I am content no matter what is happening around me. Now, many of us in the church today, we've never really truly grasped the reality, the holiness of God. All along, we've been worshiping a counterfeit, uh, an imitation, a God in our own making. But my challenge to you, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 37, verse 4. The psalmist tells us, taste and you'll see that the Lord is good. So that's my challenge to you today. Taste what God is really like. And then you'll see all that he has for you. Let's conclude with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this life that you provided for us. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, that you revealed yourself to Ezekiel those 2,500 years ago, that he saw your reality and your holiness, and that you continue to reveal yourself to us today that you've shown us your reality and your holiness 
And we ask, Lord, that you would allow this to change us so that we can have the full life that you have promised, that you have made possible. If we come to you and worship you as the true reality, the true holy God that you are, in your name, amen.